the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that a king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that a king of glory may come in. Who say this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Well, it's uh, good to see the pen has gone from last week. Um, I know some people tried to sabotage, sabotage me by replacing the pen on the pulpit, but it's gone, so we can all be thankful for that. But um, I wonder uh, who the most famous person is that you've ever met. Uh, I know Adam, uh, he's, a bit of a, uh, he's a believer, he's a bit of a Bieber fan, we discovered last week, and um, he's not really. But I, I know he'd really love to line up to meet Justin Bieber. Um, maybe you're the same. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe, you're a, maybe you're a One Direction person. Uh, I don't know. Um, I met John Howard once, that was awkward. Uh, uh, and I had a really awkward conversation with, uh, with Peter Cosgrove. Uh, yeah, and not one of the finest moments in life. Uh, and I caught the plane once with Ricky Ponting. Uh, he was 20 rows in front. But, um, but I think our eyes met in the waiting lounge and we kind of just... We just... The head, the head wave. Well, I don't know who the most exciting person is that you've met uh, or who the person that you'd really like to meet is But Psalm 24 is a psalm about a meeting. Uh, But it's not just about any meeting, it's about a meeting between God and man. Uh, And that's what we're looking at this morning, this this psalm which speaks about this meeting between God and man. Before we get into it, uh, it's maybe worth saying that a few years ago, quite a few years ago actually, I heard a a sermon by David Jones from Hobart on this psalm and I found it very helpful and so I think a lot of what I'm going to say today is reflective of uh, his insights uh, on this psalm. But the psalm starts with uh, an observation about who God is. So in verse 1 David writes, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So David starts by saying that the world belongs to God. Why does it belong to God? Why is it his possession? Well, the answer in verse 2 is because he founded it upon the uh, seas and established it on the waters. Why uh, is the earth God's? It's God's because he made it. I think we can kind of appreciate that at one level, uh, can't we? If we build something, if you build something, 
uh, you kind of feel a sense of ownership over it. It's yours because you made it, you imagined it, you invested time and energy into it, uh, you thought about it and you, you cared in your construction of it. I don't know how many people came to the market uh, on Friday night, but at the market there were loads of people who'd, who'd made uh, stuff themselves to sell. Uh, now imagine that uh, there's a person there selling some, uh, some knitted socks uh, and, and I came up to them and I said, I'd like to take these socks. Uh, and they said, that'll be $20. Uh, and I said, <laughs> I'm sorry, you've misunderstood me. I'm not, I'm not buying them, I just want to take them. I'm just going to take them. They said, you can't do that, I'm, I made them. They said, well, what does that matter? It would be an outrage, wouldn't it? It would be an outrage because they'd invested their time into making it. It was, it was theirs. They'd made it. It wasn't mine to take. It's an outrage for a pair of socks. What is it when we do that to the God of the universe, when we take God's world away from God? Of course, uh, as humans, we're pretty clever at sort of finding ways of justifying ourselves and making ourselves feel better about taking God's world from God. And one of the, the key ways that we do that is to deny that God created it at all. Uh, imagine that conversation again uh, at the knitting stall. I'm taking these socks, uh, but they're not yours to take. I made them. Uh, they took me hours to make. And then I said, you didn't make those. They just made themselves. It would be an outrage, wouldn't it? I mean, some people's socks might look like they made themselves, but... But in truth, they've invested time into them, haven't they? And they're theirs, uh, they own them, uh, they're not mine to take. And if that's an outrage with a pair of socks that we might make, what is it when God has invested all his time and energy into creating our world, into creating us? And then we steal it from him. We say, no, you didn't make this. It's an outrage. No, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it because he founded it upon the seas and established it on the waters, says David. That really has to change, I think, the way that you look at the world, doesn't it? You know, you might have a tree uh, in your backyard that you want to cut down. Uh, and, and, and what do you say to yourself? You say, when the council says you can't cut it down, you say, this is my tree, I can cut it down if I want to. But that's not true, is it? It's not your tree. Actually, it's God's tree first and then it's your tree. It's not just up to you to decide. We need to ask ourselves in every decision that we make, what does God want us to do with this? To stay, to keep the tree, to, to tear the tree down. What does God want? It's not mine. It belongs to God. It's like living in a rental property. You know, it's not yours to do with whatever, whatever you want. You have to ask the owner. And it's the same with the world. The world belongs to God because he founded it upon the, the waters and established it on the seas. It's amazing isn't it, that so much of our lives is lived on the premise that we own the world and it's my right to decide what I want to do with it. But God says it belongs to him. Now we might be able to stomach that 
when it comes to trees and cats and dogs and plants and whatever else it might be. But God's ownership of the world goes further still. Suppose for a moment that you make a beautiful TV cabinet and you know it's your pride and joy, you've invested hours and hours into constructing this cabinet and you come home from work one day to find the cabinet standing in the hallway with its bags packed and you open the door and it says to you, I'm leaving, I'm out of here. You know, I, I, you don't own me, I'm my own person. I'm going somewhere else. It it would be an outrage, wouldn't it? It would be an outrage because you made it. You constructed it. You poured hours of time and effort and love into it. It's not just it's not just that you that you're kind of like this domineering, you know, kind of father figure. No, it's that you love it because you made it. And you made it just the way that you want it to be. And then it decides to walk out. We can accept maybe God's ownership of the world around us, but it's a much, much harder thing, isn't it, to accept God's ownership of us. We think to ourselves, how can God claim to own me? How arrogant. And yet where does the arrogance really lie? With God or with us? With the God who made us? Or with us as people who refuse to accept the glorious cabinet maker, the world maker that God is? Now David says, and rightly so, the earth belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, because he founded it upon the seas and established it on the waters. Well, that's the first thing, that the earth belongs to God. There is this God who created us, who made us and who owns us. But the psalm goes on to talk about the possibility of meeting that God. Uh, You know, God is not a God who just made the world and left it to be. God is not uh, far off in the sky and and, uh, unapproachable. No, there's a possibility, the psalm says. There's a a possibility of meeting with this God. Verse 3 asks, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? What does David mean by that? What does he mean by ascending the hill of the Lord? Is God kind of, you know, perched on top of a great hill in the sky? Is he perched on top of a hill somewhere in the Middle East? Some people see this psalm as being connected with something that happened early in the days of King David's reign when he brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem for the first time. The ark was a, was a box, a wooden box covered in gold and it was supposed to symbolise the presence of God. And in 2 Samuel 6, David brings that ark up into Jerusalem for the first time. Is that what the psalm's talking about? Some people say that what is in mind is something later in Israel's history. So it's people uh, journeying up to Jerusalem and the temple is there sitting on top of Jerusalem Uh, and they would go up and they're ascending the hill of the Lord and they're asking, who can go up to the temple? Uh, Who can go up to to meet with God in the temple? Is that what the psalm is talking about? I don't think uh, either of those things are the case. You see, in the next section, uh, later in the psalm, there's the king who's approaching the city and the ancient doors are urged to, to be lifted up 
and, and that word, ancient, is the same word which is used uh, for eternal. It's the same word as eternal. Uh, it can mean eternal, it can mean very old. But these doors on this city, you see, are, they're very old. They're not just, you know, they haven't just been around a few years. This is an, this is an ancient city that, the, that David is talking about. They're doors, I think, which have been around since the beginning of time. That's what he's saying. You see, the realities of the temple, a physical temple, a physical uh, building set on top of Jerusalem, they may be there in the background, but you know, the people in the Old Testament weren't stupid. They weren't idiots. They weren't stupid enough to think that God lived in a building made by human hands. That's what Stephen gets upset with the people for thinking in Acts chapter 7. Uh, Adam and Eve had walked with God in the Garden of Eden. You know, imagine seeing this wooden box covered in gold and thinking, wow, we're in the presence of God. They weren't stupid. They knew where they'd come from, where humanity had come from. Humanity had come from the Garden of Eden. And God had given them this rich symbol, yes, but they weren't silly. David in the first verse of this psalm has pushed our minds back to the creation of the world. He's, he, he's reminded us God created the world. He founded it upon the seas. He established it on the waters. He's saying to us, do you remember that time? Do you, do you remember reading about that? Do you remember hearing about that when God created the world? What was it like? Men and women walked with God. That's what it was like. And you can just imagine David walking up the hill of Jerusalem to the Ark of the Covenant, you know, sitting on top of the hill, and you can just imagine him walking up and thinking to himself, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Not this hill in the middle of the Middle East. No, who can ascend the real hill? Who can do what Adam and Eve did and walk with God, walk with the God who made them and owned them? Who can do that? Well, David gives the answer in verse 4. He says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. There are two key requirements there. Clean hands and a pure heart. Uh, clean hands, uh, it's probably better uh, to think of innocent hands. That's better translated as innocent hands. It's not connected with... Uh, the clean and unclean in Leviticus, you might remember that from last year. It's a different idea. Uh, the idea here is innocence. So the person who can meet with God is a person who is free from past offences, innocent of past sins. They have a, a blank rap sheet, if you like. What sins will keep us from meeting with God? There's lots of sins that will keep us from meeting with God. Uh, there are sins directly against God. There's the sin of loving something else more than God. There's the sin of trusting something else more than God. David talks here about the person who lifts up their soul to an idol or swears by what is false. There's the sin of refashioning God into the God that we want him to be. Uh, so we turn God uh, into someone who, who approves of our, of our sin rather than hates our sin. There's a sin of misusing God's name, speaking lightly about God, flippantly about God, taking God's name on ourselves, calling ourselves Christians when we're not. 
There's sins against God too which we commit uh, by trampling on the people that he's made. Uh, There's not honouring your parents, not just dishonouring parents but not honouring them. There's murder and the root of murder which is anger and hatred. There's adultery and the root of adultery which is lust. There's theft and the root of theft which is wanting what other people have that you don't have. There's lying and the roots of lying which are pride and self-righteousness and bitterness. And David is saying if we've committed any of those sins then we can't ascend the hill of the Lord. We can't meet with God. If we have dirty hands we can't meet with God. But there's that other requirement as well, isn't there? There's this pure heart. That is a heart free from evil desires, a a heart which doesn't go astray, a heart which always trusts God, a heart which always loves God, a heart which always desires God, a heart which always overflows with love for our neighbour, a heart which is rightly angry when God is maligned, a, a heart which is rightly compassionate and forgiving when someone is repentant a heart which doesn't delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. Who can meet with God? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? The one who has clean hands, innocent hands and a pure heart. They're high demands, aren't they? They're high demands. Actually, they're impossible demands. If you think you can meet with God on your own merits, then you're mistaken. And if you think you just need to sort of climb another rung of the ladder, then you're horribly deceived. There's that old saying, I don't know if you've you've heard it, that it doesn't matter if you stand on the highest mountain on earth, you're no closer to the sun than if you stand in the deepest valley. You know, there's this unbridgeable gap between the God who made us and loves us and us as sinners with dirty hands and impure hearts. So God made us, he owns us. There's this possibility of meeting with God, but it's beyond us. And the last section of the psalm provides the answer to David's question. Who can ascend then? Who, you know, if I can't, who can And the answer is surprising. Verse 7 says, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now here's the question, and this is the question that David Jones asked, and he's right. Why would a gate need to lift up its head? Now we might think that what what the psalmist is talking about is like uh, gates that rise up, you know, like on a medieval castle. Uh, and you know like the portcullis or whatever it's called and it raises up and you know the people come in but there's there's no evidence that uh, ancient Israel had gates like that they didn't have gates which lifted up they had gates which pivoted which swung open now why would a gate why would you say lift up your heads O you gates well lifting up uh, a head is is an idiom it's a it's an expression uh, and it means to exalt someone or to, or to encourage someone this is what Job says in, uh, in chapter 10, verse 15. I cannot lift my head, for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. 
So to have a drooping head then is to be downcast or afflicted. And so the question then becomes, why would a gate be depressed? Why would a gate be downcast? Why would a gate be full of sorrow? It doesn't make any sense. Until you think about David's question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Why would a gate be downcast? It would be downcast and depressed because no one had ever entered since the creation of the world until the time of David. No one had ever climbed the hill of the Lord. The gates of the city of God had never opened. People had come knocking but they weren't allowed to enter. The gates of heaven which led to the presence of God were rusted shut because no one was found worthy to climb the hill of God. And then the call goes out to rejoice and to be encouraged that the King of glory might enter the city of God. Who is this King? Verse 8 asks. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, the king, uh, who is he this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Who can ascend the hill of God? Who can meet with God? The answer is God himself. No ordinary man can meet with God. But the King of glory can, the King of glory who is God himself. He is the only one who is suitable, qualified to meet with God. God, the King of glory, can meet with God. How does that help us though? Well, we have to remember that a king is not just a king for his own sake, but a king is a king who leads his people. The vision here is of the king returning victorious from battle. He's left the city, he's won the battle and he's coming in with his army in tow. And when Jesus, the Son of God, came down from heaven, he came down into our world, into the corruption of our world and our lives and he won the victory and he's he's returned to the heavenly city and he's leading his people in tow, he's leading his army in tow. If we know Jesus, the King of glory, Jesus can lead us into the presence of God. You know, I can't think uh, of a better explanation, of a clearer explanation of the Gospel than this psalm. I can't think of a better way of expressing the centrality of Jesus to our salvation than this psalm. If you're struggling to understand what it means to be a Christian, uh, what it means to become a Christian, if you're struggling to understand the good news about Jesus, well, here it is in graphic illustration form. It's not about what you've done or haven't done. It's not about uh, who you are or who you should be. It's about Jesus, God's Saviour and King, and about us falling into line behind him. Jesus is leading his people into the city of God. The gates won't open for you and me into the presence of God. But if we follow Jesus in, 
we can know God and we can meet God. If you know Jesus one day, Jesus will lead you into the presence of God and you'll stand before the throne of God. You'll live in a new creation and a new heavens and a new earth and you'll walk with God as Adam and Eve walked with God. And if you know Jesus now, if you're following Jesus now, there's a sense in which we're living in the presence of God already. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell with us. The Father and the Son, Jesus says, make their home with us. We cannot get there ourselves. We can't climb the hill. The gates won't open for us. But they'll open for Jesus. And he'll lead in everybody who knows him and trusts him and is following him. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this profound psalm that David wrote thousands of years ago as he reflected on what it would really mean to know you and to meet you. Lord, you don't dwell in buildings made by people, in temples or in churches. Lord, you dwell in the highest heavens and yet in Jesus Christ you came to dwell on earth that he might win the victory over sin and death and hell and corruption and that he might lead his people victorious into your presence. Lord, we ask that each one of us would trust not in ourselves but in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you'd enable us to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at your right hand. Lord, we ask that none of us would miss out on sharing in Jesus' great victory, And in knowing you, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.